the first proclamation of the gospel after the ascension of Jesus in the history of the world. Peter is speaking at uh, Pentecost, this gathering of Jews from all over the area. Jesus has been killed. He's risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven and he has sent his spirit upon his apostles. And they are speaking in different languages. And these men of Israel that Peter addresses look at them and they see them prophesying and speaking in languages that are not their own. And they say they're drunk. And Peter stands up and says, no, we're not drunk. Let me tell you the story. And so we're going to pick up in the middle of his explanation to the men of Israel about what has happened and what is going on. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 22, and of course it's printed in your bulletin. This is Peter speaking. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor are we, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. That God has made him. Both Lord and Christ. This Jesus. Whom you crucified. Let me pray for us. Lord God we pray that you would be with us. In the name of Jesus. Send your spirit. Comfort our hearts. Enlighten our minds. And let us see our savior. Once again. We ask this in your name. Amen. I'm going to do something that they teach you to not do in seminaries where they teach you to preach. And that is I'm going to read to you a very long quote. Um, but I think it's engaging and I think that you are competent listeners of long quotes. I'm trusting you to be able to pay attention. And I think it's this remarkable story. It was uh, originally printed in The Atlantic in the March 2003 edition it's about a man who goes into a jazz club in New York City. On a Tuesday evening in late August of 2001, I was wandering around Greenwich Village and ended up at the Village Vanguard. After 61, 60 some years of business, this illustrious little jazz haunt hasn't changed. 
It remains one of the inexplicable constants of the Manhattan landscape. Among jazz fans and musicians, the village vanguard is clearly a paragon of the music's own kind of purity, one that's neither temporary nor unnatural. I walked in on a set in progress and took the next to last seat on the burgundy leather banquet that runs along the east wall. The performance was languid. My eyes drifted, settling eventually on the trumpet player because he was turned away from the audience and even from the rest of the band, staring at the floor. Although I couldn't place him, he looked vaguely familiar like an older version of Wynton Marsalis. During the third song, the trumpeter stepped to the center of the bandstand and took his solo. Excuse me, I whispered to the man next to me. Is that Wynton Marsalis? Is, is that Wynton Marsalis? He asked. Why does he ask? Because he knows that the identity of that performer has everything to do with the significance of the event. Am I just out for a night of live music, or is this sort of a little piece of jazz history that I'm about to experience? Is what he wants to know, right? And the friend responds, I seriously doubt it. Seriously doubt that's what he wants Peter talks about, to these men of Israel, he speaks of Jesus of Nazareth, and he's used that title uh, of Jesus elsewhere, and we see it throughout the Gospels. Nazareth would have called to mind probably somewhat negative connotations. The disciple Nathaniel, when he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth, really? Is that where the Messiah comes from? This Jesus, the men of Israel, they had heard of him. Peter assumes that. They've heard the stories, and some of them have seen him in person. They've witnessed and heard his teaching and his miracles. And they had heard different things about him. That he was a teacher, that he was a prophet, that he was John the Baptist, returned from the dead, some said. A rabbi, carpenter, an insurrectionist, a rebel, a heretic, a corrupter of the youth. And you and I have heard things about him, too, in books, with friends, and television. What do you think of this Jesus? That he's a moral man? That he was a good teacher? Do you believe he was the Son of God, God in the flesh, or that he was perhaps schizophrenic, insane, and sadly misunderstood? Or a good man whose followers couldn't get over his death, and so they mythologized him to be greater than he actually was, and told stories to comfort themselves and each other. And now, pitiable people have believed in the myth and the legend, and sit around 2,000 years later. Or maybe you have no idea, and for some reason, you looked up a church and you stumbled into a cafetorium and sat down. Whatever our expectations and whatever the expectations of the men of Israel, Jesus was beyond them and other than what they expected. Three more long quote. The fourth song was a solo showcase for the trumpeter who I could now see was, in fact, Wendell Marsalis, but who no more sounded than looked like what I expected. He played a ballad. I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you, unaccompanied. Written by Victor Young, a film score composer for a 1930s romance, 
The peace can bring out the sadness in any scene. And Marsalis appeared deeply attuned to its melancholy. He performed the song in murmurs and sobs, at points nearly talking the words and notes. It was a wrenching act of creative expression. Marsalis' identity is revealed not simply in his appearance, but in his performance. Not just in who he is, but what he does. And don't you wish you could have been there for that? Sitting in the village vanguard, a leather penguin running along the east wall and watching. What does it even sound like for a trumpeter to talk notes through his instrument? But you've all experienced something like that. Maybe not quite to that level, but you've You've been in a coffee shop where a young singer-songwriter was picking his way on the guitar and there was that moment where he got it right. Or you've looked at a great work of art, or you've sat together with the people of God and worshipped with your hearts, or you've seen a sunset or a beautiful person, an act of kindness, and there's something that happens, right, in that little moment. This moment that the author of this article would go on to call magic. The aesthetic experience, the ethical moment, the experience of the life is the way it is supposed to be. The performance reveals the identity, the true greatness of Marsalis is on display. And Jesus' performance did the same, didn't it? But his performance wasn't magical. It was miraculous. Peter talks about this in verse 22. Men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. This Jesus, he's saying, this Jesus of Nazareth, the one who walked on water, and you've heard that story, the one that fed the 5,000, some of whom were you, filling your bellies, the one who turned water into wine at the wedding feast. One who healed a blind man when the blind man was cross-examined by the religious right. He said, all I know about this man is that I once was blind, but now I see. So you tell me who you think he is. And to a raging squall. In the midst of chaos and terror, he spoke and said, peace be still. And the wind and the waves obeyed him. One who said through tears, the Bible tells us he wept, tears of anger and grief. He shouted into a tomb, Lazarus, come out. And a corpse obeyed him and walked out. This is Son of God, Messiah, wonder of wonders in the flesh. Go back to the article. When he reached the climax, Marsalis played the final phrase, the title statement of the song in declarative tones, allowing each successive note to linger in the air a bit longer. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. Room is silent until, at the most dramatic point, 
someone's cell phone went off. Blaring a rapid sing-song melody in electronic beeps. Remember, that was a 2001 cell phone. How lovely those ringtones were. People started giggling, picking up their drinks. The moment, the whole performance unraveled. I scrawled on a sheet of notepaper, magic ruined. Magic ruined. The men of Israel knew something about magic ruined. They had a once glorious and mighty history, speckled, but beautiful. But now it's just a faded memory. And Peter was pointing that out. They longed for the promised son of David to come. They had lived under the oppression of Rome, and even though they were in the promised lands, they lived like slaves and exiles in their own country. And they wanted someone to come and set it right, to correct a crooked world. To set things straight where things had gone terribly wrong. And you know what Magic Ruin is like, too. You know the pain of failure and loss and missed expectations? Betrayal in relationships? Or even in a subtle moment, hollow flattery from a false friend? They're kind words, but you know they're disingenuous, so they cut. Cause pain. You know the pain of failed business ventures, broken marriages, and all of it is not how it should be. You hear the cell phone ringing, the cell phone in the fall, where a beautiful young man, full of faith and hope and promise, is gunned down. For no apparent reason Because the cell phone in the fall rings most loudly, most piercingly, most intrusively, most obnoxiously in death. And you lost someone dear to you. It rings in premature death, but it rings in the death that we all short of Jesus Christ returning, each and every person in this room, we will all die. We will all face death. It's only a matter of time. That cell phone rings in our ears. It rings in our ears with a young man, and it rings in my ears when I sit down with my wife's grandfather, who turned 90 in July as he suffered through cancer and hospice care and all the painful treatments that I'm not going to into his experience fought in the battle of the bulge as he holds on for life. Death is just as ugly there. It's just as intrusive. It's just as heartbreaking. The cell phone rings, disrupting our joy, ruining the magic of God's good creation, the way he made this world to be in the beginning. World of life. And Peter is bringing this up too. He's recalling their history and he's saying, David, you know, David was the best one. He's the highlight. He's the thing. He's the best point in your history. And where is King David now? 29. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb as with his tomb. 
Our greatest king is dead, and another one like him has never come. His bones are over there. They needed a deliverer. They needed a hero. They longed for the promised son of David to come. Peter's point is, guess what, guys? He came. He came. The one that David prophesied about, he came. And he came accompanied by mighty works and wonders and signs attested to you by God. And what did we do with him when he showed up? The hope of nations, the anointed one, the Savior and the Messiah. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of all his men. See, Peter, while completely affirming the sovereignty of God, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, he says, puts the guilt of the wicked action right in the laps of his audience. This Jesus, you crucified the hands of all his men. He's saying, the cell phone is in your pocket. And we know by extension, though we were not physically there, we sang it a moment ago, it was my sin that held him there. We all just sang that a minute ago. The cell phone is in our pocket, too. We're the one sneaking out the back door to not be seen and shamed by the audience. It was us. Participating in the sin of Adam and continuing it in there every day, in all those little ways, in all our hollow flatteries, in all our betrayals, in all our shaded truths, in all our evil thoughts. So they not, they not only killed Jesus, he, he goes on, he, he crucified him with the hands of lawless men, the shameful death of crucifixion that would have been a shame to Romans, to Greeks, and to Jews in all very particular ways. The one who came to save him, ironically, at the hands of lawless men. What he means is the Romans. The hands of the men that you wanted to be set free from, you hand your Savior over to and have them kill him. Not only that, he was the only truly innocent person who ever lived. There are people who were found guilty of crimes that they did not commit and put in prison or sometimes put to death wrongfully, but they are not truly innocent in the way that Jesus was. The only fully innocent man murdered, killed. Not only that, of course, but God himself in the flesh. The highest act of cosmic treason, of rebellion, of insurrection, conceivable in the universe was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the most evil moment in the history of the world. Killing the Son of God, the one who is himself life, but to death. The cell phone has never rung more loudly than it does. This Jesus, you crucified. And yet, Peter just said, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I'm not going to go into the full mysteries and questions of predestination and sovereignty and human responsibility and how they work together, but Peter just lays them out side by side of the Bible does it over and over and over again. Sins in your lap. God planned it. Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He could not use stronger language if he tried. 
God meant for this to happen before the foundation of the world. He intended this. This was God's plan. He was not out of control. The father was not up in heaven wringing his hands, hoping his son got out of it. They agreed upon it. Eternity passed. Yes, we are guilty. Something is ugly and wrong. It was God's definite plan. He intended it. Which makes me ask the question, why? The meditation in our bulletin says that not a hair could fall from my head without the will of my father had. He is in control of all things. Even the last two weeks. Why? Why like this? Why? I'm a Tolkien nerd about halfway through the two towers with my eight and six-year-old right now. Well, not halfway through, maybe quarter through. But Tolkien wrote this little essay called On Fairy Stories, um, where he talks about the nature of storytelling, particularly fairy tales. And he talks about in that essay this moment in great fairy tales that he calls the turn. The turn. The turn is what happens when hope is lost. When it's over. When things are terrible. Um, when everything has gone desperately wrong. I have small children, so uh, in Beauty and the Beast, it's the part where the last rose petal has fallen and Belle has not fallen in love with the beast and he's doomed to remain in the beast to die alone. Or more recently in Frozen, whose soundtrack I have heard sung to me every day for six months. <laughs> Anna not run out to meet her true love, turns to run towards her sister, but it's too late. And she has turned to ice. It's over. Hope is lost. In Star Wars. I have boys too. My daughter loves Star Wars. You know, Luke Skywalker's there and the Emperor's got him. And he's just shooting the electricity, whatever that is, from his fingers. And it's over. Hope is lost. It's dead. Or when Rocky hits the mat for the 19th time in the match. This time, it's over. You can't even recognize Stallone's face anymore. Surely you can't take any more. Tolkien says that at that moment comes the turn. When you have, even though you know the formula of the movies and the stories, in that little moment, you gave up hope. Even if you've seen the movie before. And suddenly, Rocky gets up. And you don't know how. And the champ is on his feet. And he's giving the other guy what for. Belle confesses her love to the beast, even though he's already dead. And yet somehow, the sparkles start flying. And he's brought up to air and converted into a man who's actually less attractive than the beast on the field. The beast was way cuter. Um, or Vader comes out of nowhere and grabs his former master to rescue his own son at the cost of his own. I hope I'm not spoiling this. Um, I don't care who you are. I don't how, care how conservative you are, how reserved you are. When you're watching that, Maybe it's sports for you. Whatever. When you're watching, there's this little moment where you jump. Don't you right off your couch? You say, yes, take, take that. You want to take that with you, bitch. 
take that gong. You jump. Your heart sings yes. Tolkien calls that joy. He calls it joy, and he says that you feel it because you are hardwired to experience that kind of redemption. To see it take place. And it doesn't get any better than this. Verse 13. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This Jesus God raised up. He takes the very thing that served for His humiliation and turns it into the thing that gives Him His exaltation. And the sin of the Spirit. From death comes resurrection, redemption, ascension into heaven, pouring out of the Spirit. Through his death, you and I might have life. It's the turn. Tolkien writes this. It's not difficult to imagine the peculiar excitement and joy that one would feel if any specially beautiful fairy story were found out to be true. It's narrative through history. The joy would have exactly the same quality as the joy which the turn and fairy stories give. Such joy has the very taste of primary truth. The Christian joy, the Gloria, is of the same kind, but it is preeminently, infinitely, if our capacities were not so finite, it is preeminently high and joyous because this story is supreme and it is true. It's true. Now, what he's saying, what I'm saying, we're not saying, what a lovely story. Don't you wish it were true? Let's all pretend it is. No, he's saying that rather we resonate with all these other things because we were made to know the true story. That we were made to believe it. There is good historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus that I'm not going to get into. After you've given him a long break, give, Car give Carlos a call. Or talk to one of your elders, or I bet you've got a book table over there that's got a book that talks about it. Ask a friend. The claim of Christianity and the claim of history is that this is not just a fairy tale. We tell our children, we give them peace at night, and we tell ourselves in some sort of Freudian coping mechanism to deal with the harsh realities of the world. Rather, it's historical. It's a fact. It is the ground of our hope. It is the turn of human history. Upon which all other turns and all of the other joys are simply an echo, a whisper, and a rumor. It's true that God built the turn into human history. And you begin to see redemption break out in small ways. And you've already begun to experience it. We heard a short story of one up here a minute ago. Someone being invited to be in this church. The other day at Presbytery, one of the pastors who's been planning a church over more in the Chesapeake area at Crosswater talks about people at the gym that he's been praying for and working out with, even a police officer who knew of the officer who was also taken down, and they bonded together over both losing one of their own in this tragedy. And others that he have been talking to, seeing your pastor and his wife on the couch on television as they jog on the treadmills together, and it's just staring taking it over and it. Still, 
not the way it's supposed to be. It is ugly, wretched, and wrong. Death is an enemy, but it is an enemy who has been conquered by Christ. And he has risen, and he will return. And he will raise us up, and he will raise Mark and you and me to stand before him. Go back to the jazz club. Marsalis paused for a beat, motionless. <clears throat> His eyebrows arched. The cell phone offender scooted into the hall as the chatter in the room grew louder. Still frozen at the microphone, Marsalis replayed the silly cell phone melody note for note. And then he repeated it and began improvising variations on the tune. The audience slowly came back to him. In a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down to the ballad tempo. And then he ended up exactly where he had left off. With. The ovation was tremendous. When the crucifixion comes to resurrection, Jesus entered right into that cell phone. And he replayed that silly jingle note for him in his death. Right into the worst of the fall. From the worst of the curse comes salvation and redemption. And we still hear the cell phone tune playing, don't we? We've heard it loudly this week. We hear it in our lives. But a new song is taking over. A new instrumentalist has occupied it and redirected it and bringing from it redemption. The new song shows the beauty and the power and the grace of the Creator in some sense, though it is still an ugly song. It shows His beauty and glory that much more than if it had never come. We live in the middle of that mystery. We live in the middle of that song. And so we have great sorrow and pain also great hope, and great faith, and great joy, and great longing in the God who makes beauty out of ugly things, who brings life out of death. He is risen. He has ascended. He has sent His Spirit, and He is coming again, and He will finish right where He began, the perfected humanity, and His new perfected creation, but better, all to His glory. I'll end with Peter's last words. But all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, and be crucified. Lord God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the hope that we have in you and help us to cling to that hope, to cling to the crucified and risen Lord. Give us grace to follow you faithfully through tears, through anger, through pain, through sorrow. Sustain us and show us your grace, your glory, and your hope. We ask this in your name. Amen.